What's up, guys? This is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Robert Morey on the topic of Islam. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. guys welcome back again we're going to be talking to dr robert morey uh we're going to be talking on this subject of the religion of peace you hear over and over uh in the media and so many ministries out there they're claiming that islam is a religion of peace well what's all this business about jihad is it some kind of spiritual struggle against sin is it some kind of other struggle or is it jihad of the sword what does mohammed teach what does the quran say about jihad what does the hadith say about jihad we're going to be talking about these things and so much more a little bit about dr mori this guy is quite the accomplished man okay he's written over 65 books okay some of them have been translated into languages such as uh, German French Italian Dutch Danish Swedish Spanish Arabic Farsi Polish and Finnish Okay, as far as his education goes, he's got a bachelor's uh, in philosophy, a master's of divinity in theology, uh, a, a doctorate in ministry in apologetics, a doctorate of divinity in Islamic studies, a PhD in Islamic studies, and a culinary arts uh, uh degree of some kind from Thompson Institute. He's going to whip up a fine dish of Islam for us today. But um, <laughs> uh, Dr. Mori has worked with and has studied with some of the more famous names in apologetics out there. Uh, people like Dr. Walter Martin, uh, Cornelius Van Til, Francis Schaeffer, uh, Gordon Clark, just to name a few. Uh, really, I could go on and on about uh, many of the accomplishments of Dr. Mori. Uh, he worked for the FBI, uh, taking down various uh, terrorist cells, uh, bringing various terrorists to, to justice, he has been the adjunct professor of apologetics uh, at Evangelical Theological Seminary. He's lectured at many seminaries, uh, chairman of the membership committee of the Evangelical Theological Society, um, president of California Biblical University and Seminary, pastor of New Life Bible Church from 1977 to 1998, pastor of Faith Community Church from 2005 to 2009, and on and on it goes. I am very honored to welcome uh, Dr. Robert Morey to the podcast. Dr. Morey, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. It's my pleasure to be with you. So, uh, Today, friends, we're going to be talking about 
the religion of peace. We're going to be talking about Islam. Uh, Islam has been in the news repeatedly over the last, uh, well, several years, and things continue to, to spiral down. Uh, it's a hot topic, and I know many of you continue to ask me to do more shows on Islam, what it teaches, uh, and how we can communicate uh, the truth to Muslims and also to those in the world around us who are getting a different story from the media. And so uh, on that note, uh, so Dr. Marie, uh, we hear repeatedly from our media and, and the current administration that Islam is a religion of peace. Is that true? Well, um, there are many logical fallacies that are used by uh, Muslims, liberals, and low-information evangelicals, and low-information media people. And these are actually tricks. They're classic uh, fallacies. And, for example, there is no such thing as, quote, the religion of Islam. So when someone said, is Islam a religion of peace? I said, well, number one, it's not a religion. It doesn't exist. There is no the religion of Islam out there in the world. Uh, you can't get a P.O. box. You can't give me a physical address. There's no even a tax uh, number for that, a 301C, nothing. What we have are dozens of different competing groups, each claiming to be true Islam, they hate each other so much that they murder each other and have killed each other. Uh, you have the Sunni, you have the Shiite. In the last war between the two of them, over one million people died. Well, which version of Islam, the Sunni or the Shia, which is the right one? See, the Bush family, uh, being friends with the Saudis, unwittingly have adopted the Wahhabism of the Saudis as true Islam, which, of course, ticks off the Persians as they are Shiite. But see, there's also uh, the Ahmadians. Their most famous apologist was Didat. There's the Sufis. There's uh, the followers of Aga Khan. You ever heard of the Aga Khan, Michael? I have not, no. Well, he claims he's Allah. And he has mosques all over the world. And then you also have the nations of Islam. Uh, yeah. Farrakhan is only the head of one of five nations of these Islam. And Farrakhan claims he's Allah, he's God, He's Jesus, etc. And of course, I give the documentation for this in my book, Islamic Invasion, a whole subject. So generally, when you get on radio or television or you're at a public school meeting uh, or any situation where you can tackle, even to write an, a letter to the editor, you say, number one, there is no religion of Islam. There are competing groups that hate each other, murder each other, kill each other. They disagree over what uh, the Quran is. They disagree over the teachings of Muhammad, and they actively kill each other. So th the proper question is this. So once you sweep the garbage away, that there is such a thing as the, the religion of Islam, it's a myth, it's a literary motif, 
you said the only logical question from which we can get an answer is this. Did Muhammad tell his followers to attack, rob, rape, enslave, and murder those who don't believe in him, that is, the infidels? And the answer, yeah. according to the Quran and the accepted hadith, such as uh, Sahih al-Bukhari, is yes. A matter of fact, um, computers are a marvelous thing. And we put into the computer how many times the Arabic word for kill uh, in the Quran, 114 surahs, and in uh, Bukhari, that's nine volumes, 6,000 pages. And oh, wow. Saki Musalim is four volumes, 4,000 pages. And then there's also a 2,000, uh, uh, a two-volume instead of a four-volume. But let's say over 10,000 pages, how many times did Muhammad say to kill infidels? Over 33,000 times. Whoa, and and again, now, that's between the, the the Quran and the Hadith. Yes, just counting the number of times that uh, Muslims are told to kill infidels. Now, English translations will usually obscure that and say the word fight, uh, but it's not the Arabic word for fight. It's the word for kill. I have a DVD on this uh, on jihad in which I'm reviewing Arabic scholars, uh, historians, where we get into the meaning of jihad. But over 33,000 times, according to the computer count, uh, the Quran and the Hadiths are instructing Muslims to kill unbelievers. Now, the second question is, did Muhammad himself attack, rob, rape, enslave, and murder unbelievers, according to the Quran? and the accepted hadith. And you see, they don't want to answer that question. Because the answer is yes. He sent his followers out to attack, rob, rape, enslave, and murder over 65 times. He himself went out killing and looting and raping over 20 times. Matter okay. Fact, is, you know about the Battle of El Hud? I have read about it. Go ahead and explain that. Well, uh, he had to his dying day a long scar that went down the side of his face because he was hit with the sword. Now, he had told his followers that Allah had promised him victory if they attacked. Well, they attacked, they lost, and he almost died. But you see, he himself... Uh, raped women publicly. He enslaved them. Uh, matter of fact, do you know uh, about the Jewish woman whose husband and sons that Muhammad had killed, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, and he liked what he got when he raped her publicly. He put her in his harem. And then later, supposedly, uh, she cooked a batch of poisoned lamb stew, and she's the one who killed Muhammad. The problem is there's a, huh. there's a two-year waiting period between the lamb stew and when he died. 
Mm. But one of the reasons they want Jews to die is that they killed Muhammad. Um, but no, the answer is, what did Muhammad do? Uh, we're not to be asking uh, some little girl uh, who simply has a towel on her head and she's going to tell you her opinion or some imam or a, a representative, a mullah. You have to be very specific and say there is no religion of Islam. That's a trick question. In logic, it's called a non-secular. It's nonsense. Did Muhammad do these things? Did he teach these things? When you go for that question, don't expect an answer. They will begin to run for the hills to scream you should be put to death. I remember one I spoke before, 2,000 Muslims. They wanted me to fly to Canada and explain why I'm not a Muslim, and I did. And they, be they began to shout, uh, fatwa, fatwa, fatwa. And I said, look, I'm from New York City. I grew up with death threats. Get over it. Let's keep on with the debate. So uh, understand, <laughs> the moment you go and change the question to Muhammad, that's when the liberal media, low, inf low information evangelicals, uh, liberals and Muslims run for the hills because they don't want to answer that question because it's too clear he did kill and murder and sent his disciples to do so. So you are saying, basically what you're saying here is that when a, when a Muslim goes out and kills somebody in the name of Allah, uh, you know, the, the media wants to call them a, a, an extremist they're not an extremist. They're actually being consistent with the teachings of Muhammad, with the teachings of the Quran and the Hadith. Yes, that's why they are called fundamentalists. And uh, the World Congress on Religion said, we have a problem. There are fundamentalist Christians. I mean, they actually believe in the Bible. Can you believe that? Fundamentalist Hindus fundamentalist Jews, fundamentalist Muslims, and these fundamentalists are true believers. So you'll have a truckload of fanatical fundamentalist Hindus who come into a village in India where most of the people are Christian, jump out of the truck and begin to beat them all with uh, bamboo canes and telling them to renounce Christ and accept Krishna. They must return to Hinduism. And uh, you have fundamentalist uh, Jews, and they're called the true believers. And in this case, fundamentalist Muslims are simply sincere Muslims who say, if Allah said it, and the, and the Quran teaches it, that settles it, I believe it, I'm going to do it. So a fundamentalist Christian understands a fundamentalist Muslim. As a fundamentalist Christian, you want to follow Jesus. You want to do what he tells you to do. And, of course, he was the Prince of Peace. He never told anyone to kill, to rape, to loot, to do any of that. But if you are following Muhammad, you want to do what he said. So, no, the terrorists are the most sincere, religious, 
fundamentalist Muslims in the world, the rest of the Muslims are just nominal. Because uh, most people, regardless of the major religion, um, are nominal. You were born a Baptist church, and you'll be a Baptist till you die, or you're born a Hindu. Most people view their religion as a cultural heritage. So if you're Greek, you will be Orthodox. And you see this mentality um, means that most people never think about religion. They never ask, why do I believe what I believe? And it's our job to get fundamentalist Muslims to think instead of reacting. And I do that... uh, I have an open letter to Muslims where I give a series of questions. Now, um, in your reading of the Quran, and I don't know if you've ever read the Sahih al-Bukhari or the famous commentaries on the Quran such as Manduri, did you ever happen to run across the sections dealing with the issue, is it right to ask questions? Did you ever see that discussed in Muslim literature? No, no. Well, Muhammad was asked questions, and he would get red in the face. At times, he would say, Allah hates you for asking questions. In Surah 25, we read, do not ask questions. For some people in the past, having asked such questions, got them answered, and they left the faith of Islam. So we are told not to ask questions. So it's, I'm from New York City. You can imagine if you're walking in Times Square and someone marched up to you. Do you like Michael or Mike? Oh, either way. Michael works. Michael. Uh, someone walked up to you and said, hey, Michael, eat this. Would you <laughs> is eat it? it without asking <laughs> what is it or would you just eat it? Right. What is it? Yeah, well, uh, drink this. I'm not going to drink this. I got some questions. Well, that's why uh, when I'm before a Muslim audience, I begin by saying, uh, Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach Baruch Hashem, said, keep on asking questions and you'll get them answered. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened. Keep on seeking and you will find. But Muhammad said, do not ask questions. Submit. The Islam means submission, not answers. So that's why it can be done at the point of a sword. So if you can begin to get a Muslim or a liberal or a humanist or low information Christian, you can begin to make them ask questions. They're on their road to renouncing Islam. Very good. Uh, one of the things we've brought up several times, and I, I'm realizing we probably should have gone back and defined this. Can you tell my listeners what exactly is the Hadith? Well, when I lectured on it, I would bring up to the front of the classroom or the church. On the communion table would be nine volumes done by Sahih al-Bukhari 150 years after Muhammad's death. Next to it would be the four volumes of uh, Sahih Muslim, 
then the two volume, then the one volume. Then I would put the Quran on top of the volumes of Hadith. The Quran is based on the Hadith. The Hadith is not based on the Quran. Most of Sharia law, Islamic culture, or what is called the Ummah of community, comes from the Hadith. For example, where in the Quran does it say that Muslim women must wear a veil? Nowhere. It's not there. It's not there. Well, what about the Saudis who cover the women from head to foot and only leave a little tiny square? That's not in there. What about the, the different kinds of Muslims and different kinds? It is not there. But what about the Sharia law where you cut this off if they do that and you cut? That isn't in the Quran either. Islamic law, Islamic culture is found in the Hadith. It is the Hadith that explains where the Quran came from, how it was copied. It was gathered by the Caliph Usman, and he decided to make a standard edition, and he burned all the other Qurans. It's in the Hadith. We learned that there were verses in the Quran that were taken out, verses that were put in there. Uh, you've heard of the satanic verses, Salman right. Rushdie. Now, that was the novel, but the phrase uh, refers to the verses in the Quran where Muhammad, in a weak moment out of fear, still continued the practice of the daughters of Allah, Allah, Al-Uzza, and Manat, that they were the intercessors. So the daughters of Allah, referred to in the Quran by name. And they took that verse out because he said, well, Satan inspired me to put that in the Quran. The Hadith tells us who Muhammad was, what happened, where he went, uh, the laws concerning food. The Hadith is really what Islam is about. Uh, the Quran is just uh, based on it. Now, an analogy is this. When the Mormon missionary, and again, there is no such thing as the religion of Mormonism. There are 114 different Mormon denominations, each claiming to be true Mormonism. Well, either one of them is true and the others are false, or they're all false, but they can't all be true. But let's say the Donnie and Marie type come to your door. They want to give you the Book of Mormon. Right. They don't give you the other sacred books. Right. Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price, Book That's of Abraham. Right. Nor do right. they want you to see the Journal of Discourses. Right. Or Joseph <laughs> Smith's History of the Mormon Church. Sure. Because if you read that stuff, then you know that Joseph Smith and his sidekick, I call him Brigham, because he said to women, bring them young, bring them old, just bring them in. <laughs> and uh, bring them. Oh. Oh, yes. And I, they talk such things as people live on the moon and live on the sun, dress like Quakers, yep. and live to be a thousand years old, and they're six feet high. But anyway, Oy. back to Muhammad and his crowd. The Hadith, um, Bukhari, 
went through all of the legends concerning how Muhammad supposedly received the Quran, uh, written on palm leaves with camels later who ate them, on lamb bones, on shirt tails. Um, it's quite revealing when you read the officially recognized. Matter of fact, in Saudi Arabia and in Egypt, it is capital punishment if you deny the validity of the Hadith. You die. It is called the second inspiration. The Quran is the first, the Hadith is the second. Uh, Dr. Gleason Archer, dear friend of mine, who's now in glory, um, professor at Fuller, and then he was at uh, Trinity Divinity School, said, Bob, you are the only evangelical scholar who has actually read the over 10,000 pages, and you're the one that discovered all these crazy teachings of Muhammad. Saint lives in the nose. I said, I guess well, that's where the boogeyman came from. And the uh, Jews can turn into monkeys and pigs. And Adam was 90 feet tall. In my debate with Gamal Badawi, I said, Muhammad said that Adam was 90 feet tall. How big was Eve? He was very confused. He didn't know what to do. I said, now, if she was 90 feet tall, how come we're small? And then he said, well, she was only a small woman. I said, if he was 90 feet tall, that's King Kong with Ray. It ain't going to fit. So they oh. have a problem. If you look at what is taught, and I gave the first analysis of it in Islamic Invasion and then later further analysis of it, you will find things that absolutely contradict science. Uh, the sun goes down beneath a muddy pond. Um, the first miracle of Muhammad is the Quran. Do you know what the second miracle is? Oh, I should know this. At one point I knew this. The splitting of the moon. Muhammad reached up with his sword and cut the moon in half. Now that means either the, small, the moon is very small or the sword is very big. But yet it is called the second miracle. To me, the other miracle is putting it back together again. So uh, I went to a big meeting on uh, Islam and I looked at the other books and they'd all plagiarized my material on the Hadith. One guy who, a secular guy, but he has a number of bestsellers on Islam. I came up to him and I said, hey, I want to thank you for using my material and getting it spread. No, no onus, no problem. He said, I didn't read your stuff. I said, my stuff on the Hadith is, is part of your book. No, I put, that's mine. I said, how many volumes in the Hadith? What? I said, how many volumes in Sahih al-Bukhari? You look confused. Uh, two or three? I said, look, if you read it, it was nine volumes, 6,000 pages. How many volumes in Sahih Muslim? You could <laughs> hear the crickets. And these guys, Norman Geisler and all the rest, they reproduce my research on the Hadiths, including the typos. Isn't that, isn't that hysterical? They included the typos. But that's fine. I want my material used. But 
So Christians need to understand the Quran is based on the Hadith. The Quran uses the word Allah but never defines it. It uses the word Mecca but never defines it. It refers to the elephant war but doesn't define it. It refers to the giant she-camel but never. You have to go to the Hadith and the Hadith explained who the blind man was, what about the war with the elephants, and this and that and that. And that. Without the Hadith, the Quran is unintelligible. Okay, I, I got to ask, what is the giant she-camel? Well, it's the Quran is a collection of fables, legends and myths drawn from paganism, Judaism, Christianity, and Eastern religions such as Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, Buddhism, things of that nature. One of the pagan myths is that there was a giant camel the size of a mountain who came preaching as a prophet of Allah. And the people got so angry, they went and cut its tendons. And the camel fell down, and that's where the big mountains of Arabia came from. Oh. <laughs> I just oh. keep saying, well, where did the, where, what happened to the poop that the camel left? It should have made the desert fertile. <laughs> But I love the one about Satan living in the nose during the night. You've got to flush him out. I'm going to get that man right out of my nose. And I said, now is that why Arabs have such big noses? You have the devil living up in there? Or does everybody have Satan living in the nose? And if he's so small as to live in your nose, why are you bothering with him? And if he's everywhere, he must be some kind of God. Is this refer and you know what Gamal Battery, the number one Muslim apologist, he meekly said, Well, that was referring to snot. <laughs> and I said, Well, that's where we got see the booger, the bigger I said, the booger man, the boogie man was the snot in the nose, that was the devil. We see how ridiculous Islam is. And if anyone wants to see it illustrated, there is a comic book entitled Muhammad's Believe It or Else, written uh, by Aziz, Abdullah Aziz, and it's like a Christian version of a Bible comic book in that this comic book uh, puts into picture form the stories from the Quran and the Hadiths, uh, people who went in a cave, a guy was 300 years old, Satan in the nose, Oh, yes, and if you get sick, Muhammad said, you've got to drink camel tea. Oh. So I say, to pee or not to pee? That is the question. And so um, you've got to get a hold of that, and you can get a copy by going to my ministry, faithdefenders.com. We sell that for Abdullah. He's in hiding. Abdullah Aziz, Muhammad's Believe It or Else, and it all comes right from the Quran and the Hadith. There's nothing in there about Jesus or the Bible or God. It's strictly saying if you accept Muhammad as Rasul, the prophet of Allah, then you have to believe everything he taught, including um, 
You know, uh, uh, each fly, one wing is a poison, but the other wing is the antidote. So if a fly falls in your water, don't worry about it. Just go ahead and drink it down. Oh, <laughs> but if it only has one wing, you better dump that. Well, then you've got to work. Yes. But see, the Hadith, <laughs> uh, for example, the most important part of the Hadith, how do we know that Muhammad was a true prophet of Allah? Well, he had the seal of the prophet on his shoulder. Well, what is the seal of the prophet? Now, this is in the Hadith and the Encyclopedias of Islam published by Muslims. What is the seal of the prophet? A large black hairy mole on his back. Holy moly. There you go. That's what I said, holy moly. And in one of my debates, he said, but it's biblical. And the government should be upon his shoulders. Well, oh, come on. Yes. You will even find that in one of the encyclopedias of Islam that tries to give a biblical justification uh, that the mole proved he was a prophet because Isaiah predicted the coming of Muhammad, when of course it was the coming of Jesus, that the, sh- uh, the, you know, the government will be upon his shoulders, but it doesn't say moles. I always said, here a mole, there a mole, everywhere a mole, mole. And a surgeon could have ended Mo- uh, Muhammad's prophetic career with a scalpel. <laughs> now you see why they want to kill him. Oh man! So, so what types of uh, arguments will you hear from Islam to uh, um, promote the idea that it is, in fact, a religion of peace? Well, number one, they count on your ignorance that there is such a thing as the religion of Islam. So, the first thing you do is destroy that. The second thing, they say, well, it doesn't matter because you Christian. This is called the President Hussein Obama. Insane arguments. He was at the prayer meeting. Why they bothered to have him there? But anyway, he said, you Christians had the crusade and killed people. But you see, again, here's the problem. You've got to keep the comparison between Muhammad and Jesus. The moment they appeal to the crusades, you've got to stop them dead in the track. Say, whoa, wait a second. Jesus did not tell his followers to do crusades, to kill people, or use the sword to spread Islam. So when the Catholics ran around in the Inquisition killing people, of which my relatives, the Sephardic Jews, were among those who got tortured and racked, a Moscanazi Sephardic Jew on my mother's side, when they were forced to leave Spain, uh, the Inquisition was not very quiet. But see, they weren't following the teaching of Jesus. So you can't compare what the Catholics do in contradiction of Jesus to what Muslims, the terrorists, do in obedience to Muhammad's teaching. So they can't use the Crusades. And they say, oh, yeah, but Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. Well, in the context, is talking about divisions within the family where you believe, and let's say your parents don't believe, but it was not a physical sword. It's very, very clear. It just meant divisions in the family. Again, they can't ring the bell and find any violence with Jesus. And right. then they right. also argue from what are called the Meccan 
surahs. The, the Quran is the most convoluted, jumbled, illogical, irrational, hodgepodge uh, of stories. Matter of fact, in the Quran it said, see, are these not pretty stories that we are giving to you? And they're not arranged according to chronology, that is, the first ones Muhammad supposedly received to the last. According to, they arrange it according to size. But the Meccan surahs were supposedly delivered when Muhammad lived in Mecca, his hometown. Uh, he only had a few followers. They were intimidated, so they ran around singing Kumbaya and holding hands with Christians and Jews and pagans singing We Are the World um, because they were a minority and they said there's no compulsion in Islam. We just want freedom. It's like the liberals when they come into a university. We want freedom of expression. And then when a Christian gets up to talk, he is shut down in five seconds. He's not allowed to talk. As you think of hypocrisy. But the Meccan... That the Medinan surahs is when he had an army in Medina, then he abrogated the Meccans and said, go out and kill Christians and Jews. So they will count on your ignorance that there are two kinds of surahs. They will call the Meccan, there's no compulsion, and not bother to tell you about the Medinan, which says we abrogate that and not run around killing people. Hmm. And that's generally what you hear from the media is the Meccan versions uh, versus. Of course. And the ones again, it's low information voters, low information, Christian, low information media people um, just starting out with them. You get on the radio, you call up one of these talk shows and you say there's no such thing as the religion of Islam. And they said, well, what do you believe about Allah? I said, you have to define what the world you mean. That word, I mean, Louis Farrakhan says he's Allah. Do I believe that in Louis Farrakhan is Allah? No. The Aga Khan says he's Allah. Do I believe in him? No. You ask me, what about Allah? You have to define your terms. Well, they become blithering idiots because they can't define it. (laughs) That's why the new series... Uh, coming on television, the history of God, of course, immediately uh, is stupid. They could have said a history of gods and goddesses, okay, but what they're trying to pretend is the universal religion, universalism. All religions are talking about the same thing. It's the old Hindu parable uh, you have a group of men that are all blind, they're gathered around an elephant, and the question is asked, what is an elephant like? And the guy's touching the tail, long and slender with the tuft. The guy holding the tusk, no, it's hard. It's like the guy holding the trunk, the guy touching the side, they all gave a different description And they thought that is what the elephant was like. And then the Hindu says, in the same way, Jesus, Muhammad, Moses, all the religious leaders, we're all describing the same God. But then you stop them dead and say, now, wait a second. 
who was the person who was not blind, who saw the whole elephant and the blind guys down there? How can the Hindu claim that he can see and the rest were blind? Well, you've exposed it immediately. Um, that is a veiled attack upon the gospel. And the man has just refuted himself when someone says, uh, you can't know anything for certain. Are you certain about that? There is no absolute truth. And is that absolutely true? And you see the nonsense. Everybody worships the same God is in psychology an illness. It's wish fulfillment. It's the same kind of statement. Uh, I believe that everybody's good. Well, there are evil people out there. And you see, that's foolishness. It's a psychological phenomenon. Right. And you have you heard some of the, the statements coming out of the, the uh, Pope uh, from the Catholic Church that um, all religions, we all worship a God of love. And so if we can all agree that God is love, then we can agree on the same God, basically. There's there's more and more propaganda coming out of the Roman Catholic Church pointing in that well, that's direction. Well, because of the Catholic Catechism. And the Catholic Catechism explicitly states, one does not have to believe in Jesus Christ to go to heaven. One can deny that Jesus is the Christ. One can deny that he was born of a virgin and crucified on the cross. So Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Buddhists, oh my, atheists can go to heaven. Atheists. And so uh, what they do, again, is lie. Um, and say that all religions teach a religion of love. Do you know about the followers of Kal Kali the Thuggies? <laughs> do you know what they do to worship Kali? They strangle people and oh. bury them in a shallow grave. That's your act of worship. Kali, of course, is that monstrosity with multiple arms and necklaces of skulls. Right, holding severed heads and sticking That's it, baby. Yeah, and so where is death. the God of love in the religion of Kali? Or Jim See, this is where facts get in, get in the way of the psychology of wish fulfillment. The Pope's just trying to maneuver his way, as the last Pope said, to be the general CEO of a one-world religion. Yes, exactly. The conclave um, in Rome, in a cathedral where they took the crosses out so as not to offend anybody, and it was the cathedral at Pisa, where you had Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and witches and uh, all kinds of people. And of course, Robert Fuller was sitting there, represents evangelicals, you say. And uh, they were all there congratulating. They all agreed that they're liberal, they're humanists, and none of them are fundamentalists. And the greatest problem we face in religion are the fundamentalists in each religious group. And if we only get rid of them, then the world could have peace. So 
So the whole idea, let's get rid of the fundamentalist Christians who actually believe in Jesus and the Bible. Then we get rid of the fundamentalist uh, Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, oh my. And so this world, they want a one world religion in which everyone is nice and you're in la-la land. It's like what Chuck Colson went to the World Congress of Religion in Chicago. And uh, I was very opposed, very opposed. So with Francis Schaeffer, we were all very upset. Um, but we found out that he was given a million dollars to show up. So if he showed up to represent evangelicals among witches and Satanists and Orthodox and Catholics, the Dalai Lama was sitting uh, behind him when Chuck Colson went up to the podium. Now, I was asked on my radio program, if they offered you a million dollars, would you go to the Congress of Religion in Chicago? I said, yes, but I would first cash it. <laughs> then I would get up there, turn around and say, well, hello, Dolly, you're not God. Get over it. <laughs> and proceed to lecture the uh, Orthodox, the Catholic, the witches, the voodoo, all of them. You are sinners in need of salvation. You're on the hell, on your way to hell without Jesus Christ. But see, I've already cast the chance. Yeah, there's there's been some efforts uh, even amongst evangelicals. You hear people like uh, uh, Rick Warren and others who are taking part in various spiritual enterprises with Islam. Uh, we we hear talk of Chrislam. Uh, can you comment a little bit on that? Uh, some strange things are going on right now where evangelicals are linking well, arms it with. Has to do with money, Michael. You've heard of black power? Uh, yeah. White power? Right. Green power. That's oh, the we money. Have, oh, green we got green power, power in Colorado. <laughs> oh, yeah, but that's the, that's the reefer madness. But I mean, the, <laughs> the green power is money. I was yep. offered a million dollars in cash if I would convert to Islam. And many more millions and lots of women if I would become an evangelist for Islam and convert Christians to Islam. Hmm. Now, I told the Iranian doctor who was offering me a million dollars to convert. I said, let me think about this. A million dollars and eternity in hell. Nah. No <laughs> Yet you will find the head of the NAACP all of a sudden announced he was becoming a Muslim. Guess what he got in his bank account? Million dollars. And the Muslims are buying influence with Bible translations to get rid of the Son of God. Sure. They're buying influence among apostate seminaries and things of this nature. That's and right. they don't do it under an Islamic name. They'll call it some um, education grant, you know, from such and such. And, it, oh, it's a shame that your seminary is not more open because you could receive a million dollars. It's like, I just got back recently, I almost uh, was in Australia for a, a year, almost immigrated. 
Now, the evangelical churches there are right now under tremendous pressure to have same-sex marriages performed in the churches. Mm. Um, the government is in the process. Laws are being passed which says if your congregation, your church, will not perform same-sex marriages if requested, you lose your tax-exempt status. You will have to begin to pay taxes on your offerings, real estate taxes on your facilities, your buildings, your Bible colleges, your camps, and everything else. Now, I told the evangelical leaders in Australia, I said, I hate to tell you this, 99.9% of you will knuckle under if it comes down to money. You're not going to let your buildings go, your Bible colleges, your seminaries. You will change your theology rather than lose the money. And guess what's happening right now? That very thing. They're changing their theology. Same thing with Islam and the pressure. Now, Westminster Seminary is where I got a master's and a doctorate. I know many of these men, and in my new book, the Bible, Natural Law, Natural Theology. I document that some of my dear friends have all sold out. And they have accepted the Roman Catholic Catechism's definition of faith. There's Michael Horton, who I've known for many years, a nice kid. And now we're saying to be saved does not require that you know of ever heard of or accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Matter of fact, you can deny that Jesus is the Son of God and still make it to heaven. And see, we're in the midst of a huge apostasy in the evangelical world. I tackled finite godism in 1985. The book came out in 1989, The Battle of the Gods. Brother Andrew, Clark Pennant, John Sanders, I name names. God is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. The omni-attributes of God. I also went after um, Gregory and other people who which he, at first were shocked and upset at me. I debated the pastor of the Bible Church in Colorado in, um, what's your main, uh, Denver, because he's teaching that God doesn't know the future, and the future's oh. not fixed. So we began the debate, and I went right for the hot. I said, now, you're telling me Jesus did not know of me or my sins when he died on the cross. Well, that's not a fair question. I said, no. It is a fair question. Not only did Jesus not know that he was going to die, because he didn't know the future, but if he did not know me of my sins, which were future, then he, Christ Jesus did not die for our sins, which were future, according to the gospel. Well, you see, they don't want to discuss it anymore. Their response is, you're mean. 
You're a hypocrite. Same thing with Clark Pinnock when I debated him. Now, God cannot know the future. Absolutely. And at the same time, you say there's no future hell awaiting unbelievers. That means you know more than your God. You know there's no future hell. Well, he, he couldn't answer that. You can't answer that. The evangelical world has lost its theological mornings. Moorings, they don't believe in the Bible as the inerrant, infallible word of God. They don't believe that God has the omni-attributes. A new book out entitled Supernatural, Head of Logos, um, the Bible people, uh, he argues that the Bible does not teach monotheism. In the beginning, a council of gods created the heavens and the earth, and the Jewish people believe that Yahweh, Yahweh, was only one God in a council of gods. Now, he, he was the chairman, to be sure, but there were other gods and goddesses. This divine council idea. It sounds just like the Mormons. As a matter of fact, it is Mormonism. It's liberalism. Right. And you see, that we are facing a situation where polytheism, uh, naturalism, natural theology, natural law, uh, where they say, you don't need the Bible. You don't need the Bible. You can find truth and morals and doctrine without the Bible. And see, that's an attack on sola scriptura, that the Bible is the final authority. Now, I didn't say solo scriptura, where the Bible's the only authority. I said sola, meaning the Bible's the final court of appeal. You have creeds, you have confessions, you have other things, but the final court of appeal, whether or not this or that doctrine is true, is scripture and scripture alone. That's gone now. Michael, it's gone. So how are they going to answer Islam? They can't. The modern evangelical, there has no theological foundation. He or she attends a church which majors in entertainment, mm -hmm. and uh, the youth pastor ties balloons to the ankles of the college age, and they run around stamping out balloons, and that's what they mean by educated in the church. They go to the university and they lose their faith. Up to 75% of every evangelical church they lose their young people to the humanists, to the atheists, because they're not taught anything. That's why I wrote a rather large book, A Christian Student Survival Manual, in which I give students the answers to how to answer these people, how when they attack the Bible and God and Jesus, to give you a good answer. And what you're doing, Michael, is of great value because the churches aren't doing it. So keep the good work. Thank you. And, and, and you, too. Um, I, I cut my teeth on so many of your uh, podcasts and books. I, I love what you're doing. So, uh, Dr. Mori, um, tell me about your book, Islamic Invasion. Now, I read this book. I have the older edition. And I've read through it at least twice, I think three times now. It's all highlighted up. It's falling apart. 
Um, absolutely love it. Um, the first book I read on Islam and by far the most informative one that I've read on Islam. Now you have an updated version. Uh, tell my listeners about that. Well, um, I'm going through all 65 of my books, new covers, uh, edit them for any typos because typos always creep in with publishers. You can't help it. Uh, but you can correct them. And then I added material, like the new edition of Islamic Invasion is a wonderful cover, new cover. And it adds many, many pages of further documentation. Um, the Muslims like to pretend, and particularly their internet attacks on me, they say, Dr. Mori's theory uh, that Allah was originally the moon god in pre-Islamic times is a bogus theory of his. And you have Hank Hanegraaff and Norm Geisler, and you've got James White, and you've got other people like that who all like parrots. They, it, it's Maury's idea, and it's stupid. But I didn't invent it. You will find over 50 scholarly references from the Middle East departments of Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and University of Edinburgh, from all the encyclopedias, the regular ones, like a Britannica, Collins, then the specific encyclopedias and dictionaries of Islam, you find over 50 scholarly references that Allah in Arabia before Muhammad was supposedly born, and he never existed, but that's another, he's a myth. Um, before he was supposedly born, was one of 350 gods, and he was uh, the chief deity, and he was married to uh, the sun god, he was the moon god. And that was the, the worship of the moon god. The symbol was the crescent moon. Uh, his big headquarters was the Ur of Chaldees, which Abraham was originally a follower of the moon god. And I document this. I even a picture of myself sitting at the Louvre in Paris. And they were bringing me all the French archaeological discoveries concerning uh, the moon god that was dug up in Arabia. And uh, there's no question the tribe to which Muhammad belonged was devoted to the worship of uh, the moon god, his wife, and their three daughters, Alat, Al-Uzza, and Manat. And what Muhammad did finally in the end, supposedly, again, he didn't exist, is that he divorced Allah from his wife and demoted his daughters to only being intercessors hmm. and not deities. So it started out as a pagan god who symbols the crescent moon. I didn't invent the theory. It's there. can be documented, as I did. But they continue to say, that's awful. Now, do they show any evidence from that time period? No. They say, oh, but the Arabic Bible has the word all in it. Yeah, that was the late uh, 1800s done by missionaries. No, I mean, show me in the time before Islam, show me where Christians or Jews were using Allah, al-Ilah, of their God. 
Right. And you can hear the crickets. It doesn't exist. Nowhere. Not a coin, not a manuscript, not a rock inscription. It didn't exist. Uh, matter of fact, the first recorded debates between Muslims and Christians, the Christian is arguing Allah is a pagan god. He is not. He, matter of fact, you've heard of uh, uh, well, the Hebrew uh, Gesenius. You ever heard of Gesenius, the first really Hebrew dictionary lexicographer? Gesenius? No, no. Well, that's where Kittle, uh, you've heard of Kittle's Old Testament. That's really Gesenius' yes. work that he did. Well, if you look what he says, Allah goes back to the moon god. So I'm quoting over 50 references, I particularly in the book, the second volume, How to Win the War Against Radical Islam, is the follow-up volume with more documentation that Islam, in its various forms, has a, is, has a false god, a false prophet, a false book, and false traditions. I call it like Elijah. And so th that's their problem. And uh, you have to document. Well, I document, Michael, and I didn't invent the idea. But so they say, in your theory, it is not my theory. I merely document. See, I, I was at the Library of Congress in 1985 working on this book. Now, you know from when you read it, do I give you a ton of footnotes and Scholarly documentation, don't I? Oh, absolutely. It's like it, my book uh, on the Trinity. Um, one chapter alone had over 100 footnotes with multiple references. So uh, Hank Hanegraaff on his program said, Maury, Dr. Maury could not have written the Trinity book. He must have a team of scholars. Well, that's ridiculous. <sighs> he can't. I did. I did the research at the Library of Congress. Fascinating. Yeah, you, you certainly do your research. Uh, this book, Islamic Invasion, is just jam-packed with good information um, about Islam. I mean, it, it just it really covers the whole gamut um, in, a, in a nice... Carson, uh, who, you know, was a Republican candidate for presidency, mm -hmm. got into trouble... Uh, a couple of weeks ago when he said on an interview, Islam is not a religion. It is a 7th century Arab political and cultural form of imperialism. Religion is part of it, but the rest is civil law. And he got into all kinds of trouble, but we sent him our book. Michael Savage, after 9-11, uh, said Islam is a religion of peace. So I immediately sent him Islamic invasion and uh, other, my other material on Islam, and within two weeks, he said, Islam is not a religion of peace. It's the violent followers of Muhammad killing in his name. So you can influence it. We sent a copy to every member of Congress, received a copy of Islamic invasion. Even President Bush was handed a copy two times by hand in the White House. Of course, he did never read it, never believed it, but, the, like, for example, the winner of the Junior Chamber of Commerce, um, that they wanted to represent that uh, wonderful charitable group 
was invited to the White House, and when Bush shook his hand, he said, and, uh, President Bush, I want to give you this gift, and he gave him Islamic invasion. <laughs> nice. Nice, baby, nice. <laughs> now, what about Obama? Does he have a copy? Um, no, I don't know anyone who can get it to him. Uh, right, right, and I don't think he'll read it either. Well, that that you you happen to mention uh, the form of deception that is used in Islamic theology. Takia. Um, yes, which means Islam divides the world into two things: the Islamic world and the non-Islamic world. Now, in the non-Islamic world, where they're they are the minority, they can lie. To protect themselves or Islam, so they can—they are perfectly allowed to say, "I am not a Muslim," when they actually are. <laughs> Matter of fact, I called the church where Obama has his—he uh, and his wife and kids—they have the membership in Chicago. The yeah, Reverend right. Wright, who's definitely wrong, and I <laughs> called the church and I asked, "Oh, it's a community church." Uh, do you accept people who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God or that he was raised from the dead? Oh, yes. We don't care what you believe. This is the community church for all people. So you joining that church does not mean you believe in Jesus Christ or the Holy Trinity. You can be a Muslim to be a member of that church. <laughs> or you can be a communist community organizer. But uh, I didn't say that. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, you see, hmm. I worked with the FBI till they finally um, got rid of me because I would not say that Islam is a religion of peace. Oh, and that's I worked with the FBI for years. I turned in many terrorists, identified terrorist training cells. I gave lectures to the FBI, naval intelligence, even the uh, uh, LAPD had me come in and give lectures. I was all over the country. Then all of a sudden, my FBI handler called me and said, we just received new orders. If you will not say Islam is a religion of peace, uh, we can no longer use your services. Oh. And I said, well, I, I can't say that. Well, then we have to cut you free. We can no longer use you. Now, later, he quit because they told him not only must you say Islam is a religion of peace, you must believe it. And he said, what? they were telling me what I have to believe. He quit. I'm speechless. I don't even know what to do with that. Um, well, do you know what happened within three days after 9-11? Every single copy of Islamic invasion was removed from every bookstore in the United States and trashed. You got to be kidding! I was not allowed to get a hold of my own book, uh. and I, the only huh. reason I ever got it back was a, a woman from Washington. She refused to tell me her name. She said, "Are you prepared to rewrite your book and say that Islam is a religion of peace?" I said, "Well." Let's see. If Muhammad is resurrected and changes his theology, yes. Otherwise, 
No. She said, well, then you're never going to get your book back. I said, I am. I'm going to make this cause to celebrate freedom of speech, freedom of the press. You haven't heard the last of me. You are banning my book in America. And the next week, the publisher said, well, we've released the book, but we can't publish it. You want to publish it? You'll have to do it yourself. Then I went. Michael, I went to the Christian distributors, and no one will distribute my book. Now you will that, not find it in a bookstore. And <laughs> that does America. not surprise me at all. Hmm. And then these people, these semi-apologists like James White and all the rest, uh, Maury's views are crazy. They're stupid. They've all come true. Islamic invasion, I said, the Muslims are going to invade Western Europe, the United States, and Australia by the millions. There will be terrorism, and it's a matter of demographic. I sat down uh, with Oliver North. We had a great conversation on this. Patsy Canson, if you haven't read his book, The Death of the West, you must. And we sat down on all of these subjects. Um, Rush Limbaugh's brother quotes me in several of his books on this issue. And you see, it's come true. I hate to say it's come true, but America's committing suicide. And uh, as we get more and more terrorists coming into the... You're going to have more San, more San Bernardino. You're going to have more and more murder and mayhem in the United States. It's going to happen. I went and got training at front side where the... Uh, Secret police have their training. Small arms training. I've got my own gun, and I, I'm working on a, a permit that I can carry. I think every Christian should. I believe with uh, Jerry Falwell's son, Jerry Jr., um, every Christian, every church should have armed people now. So if the Muslims come into your church and begin to shoot, there'll be bullets coming back the other way. Believe in Allah? <laughs> I'm going to introduce you real soon. Right. Yeah, we actually at our church, we had um, a police officer come in and train the church uh, and actually walked our church, checked out strategic positions, basically set us up to um, really protect our people. And so well, if somebody like does come in. Yeah, I can tell your pastor, he's a brilliant man. I have been preaching this since the 1980s. I incorporated the church I pastor as an educational foundation, not as a church. Because the day will come uh, when, any, if you are a church, you're going to receive political pressure about tax exempt and all of that unless you kowtow to the government. And back then, we had guns and we were doing a target plastic, a target plastic because we understood the day is going to come when to be a Christian going to be a dangerous thing. Right, right. We've read the end of the book, and we know that that day is coming. Um, we know that many Christians are going to lose their head over their faith, which is a very common practice in Islam. Well, or crucify you, which is even worse. Uh, when right. I debated uh, um, Gamal Badawi at the University of South Carolina, I was also to speak at First Baptist. Now, that is one of the great churches of the South. That's where the Civil War began, actually, was at First Baptist in Columbia, South Carolina. And I spoke, 
And the pastor got up and said, well, uh, we thank Dr. Mori for speaking about Islam. I don't see that it really affects us at all. And an elderly woman jumped up in the midst of the congregation says, I beg to differ. All of you know me. I and my family have attended this church from the beginning. My grandma, my granddaughter has converted to Islam and now has a veil on her head. And she converted at the University of South Carolina and followed a Muslim guy, and she no longer believes in Jesus. So, yes, it is relevant what Dr. Mori is saying. My granddaughter, raised in this church, is now a Muslim. You should have seen the look on the pastor's face. Boom. He said, I, I'm wrong, Dr. Mori. And I said, do you know how many mosques there are in South Carolina? Mosques? I said, over 100. You've got a million-dollar mosque, school, and cafeteria built by the Saudis right here in Colombia. I didn't know. I said, it, it reminds me of Gulliver's Travel. The church is sleeping, and the Muslims are little by little doing their work, tying us down. And the church better wake up. And understand, we need to evangelize these Muslims for Christ. Either we win them, or they kill us. Right, and uh, <clears throat> I'm sure you've heard of uh, uh, Common Core, and oh, how, yeah, yeah how uh, uh, basically, from what I understand, Common Core, uh, Islam has a powerful influence over the, the textbooks, over the material that's in there. They bought and textbook companies, the, the the Muslims own the major news. They bought AP, UPS. They bought all of them. They own them. They bought it, textbook companies. They bought... Do you know that Tiffany is owned by the Muslims? Uh, major, major... We're all bought... See, they make a billion dollars a day uh, just selling gasoline. So they're buying. They buy congressmen. By this satchel load of money. And, uh, you know, this is our problem. We are facing the buying of America. And you see, Christians need to go to the school board and get elected, get active. And then when they say, but, but Islam is a religion of peace, they said it's not a religion. There is no such religion. What's the P.O. box for that? There are dozens of groups. Which one is the true? You're prepared to decide that question when they've been killing each other for hundreds and hundreds of years? Who are you to tell which of the groups is the true one? Right. <laughs> so what kind of message of hope do you have <laughs> for my listeners today? Jesus uh, Christ we... is Lord. God is sovereign. Uh, if we are living in the last days, buckle up, people. We're in for a nice ride. Amen. And that's reality. You mm -hmm. teach the truth. You teach your children. You defend the faith. You you give the truth and love, and you speak it. That's all we can do. And you vote intelligently. Fifty percent of fundamental Christians are not even registered to vote. Right. Shame on us. Yes. 
but but amen, Jesus is on the throne. And yeah, I'm uh, not, we're not a sovereign. Dave that's right. Work. Yeah. That's I'm right. Not you know, that. right. And, and we know we've read the end of the book. We know how this goes, and things will get worse yeah. before it gets better. But a matter of fact, I wrote a book, uh, "The End of the World According to Jesus," and it gives an analysis of Mount Olivet Discourse and a new translation of the Book of Revelation, the Apocalypse. And then I give an analysis of it from uh, Messianic Judaism. It's called the Apocalyptic Hermeneutic. And hmm. it gets rid of all this Western uh, European Gentile claptrap, Scofielism and all the rest. Insane. Absolutely insane. Hmm. Which, uh, I'm sorry, which book was that? I want to look that up. Oh, The End of the World According to Jesus. And people... Uh, uh, I have been told one scholar, he said, this book will be the standard evangelical interpretation in 25 years. You have completely redone the book of Revelation um, and your translation, and you removed all the chapter divisions and the verses in order for you to see the cycle. And you see, this is what needs to be done. Um, we need, I, I also did my own translation of the Psalms, experiencing God in the Psalms. Yeah, and actually. It's a uh, dynamic translation. I, uh, somehow, I ended up with a copy of that, and I really don't even understand how I got it, but uh, I have it. <laughs> uh, well, I think, you know, I surprisingly, think... pastors are saying if I would have had this book, I could preach the Psalms. Now I have it. Now I can preach the Psalms. They make sense. Hmm. Yeah, I think my wife, when she was doing, she was getting a certificate in biblical studies. I think she ended up with it, and that's how we got it. But, um, yeah, I want to take a look at that. I want to read through that. and I, 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 There's just so many books and so little time. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, Dr. Mori, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's it's clear that we're going to have to do this again really soon uh, because we didn't even make it through all the questions. And so there's so much more to talk about. I really appreciate it. It's been a huge blessing to me. And I know everybody listening is, is just really eating this up. So thank you very much. Well, we praise the Lord for young men like you. I'm 70 this year. And the torch has to be, you know, this is a relay race. It's not a dead-end race. My job is to pass the baton of biblical apologetics to the next guy. And then you keep running. So as I tire out, die out, uh, it gives me hope. I am meeting young men and women across the country who are saying, we are not dead. We are not going to convert to Islam or humanism or natural law. We want to do what the Bible says and defend the faith biblically. They are the hope of the future. And I thank God for you. Amen. And God help us. All right. So that was part one. There's going to be a part two. Now, uh, some of you might have fallen out of your chairs here during today's study. Uh, Dr. Mori brought up some pretty big names uh, and was a little critical of them. 
Well, friends, uh, as we all know, uh, there are some, there are many apologists out there. There's some uh, ministers out there, many ministers out there who have uh, theological differences from that of the Bible. Uh, They have allowed a little bit too much of Roman Catholicism into their faith and have allowed uh, certain unbiblical, uh, uh, worldly ideas into their faith. Are they saved? Are they not saved? You know what? That's not for us to know. That's God. That God, Only God knows that. But having said that, um, yes, many of the names he mentioned today I have uh, beefs with as well. I tend to lean towards the direction that they do love the Lord. But yes, uh, in some areas, they are causing some damage to Christianity. So, uh, you know, you can take that with a grain of salt. Uh, you can talk to Dr. Robert Morey himself. You can contact him. He's a very personal guy. Uh, and I'm sure he'll talk to you about these issues, whatever the case. Uh, in part two, uh, there is some more name dropping. And I'm okay with that. Iron sharpens iron. We need to keep on each other's backs on these issues. Uh The church right now is in a really bad state because of these worldly ideas that are creeping into our seminaries. Uh, These famous teachers are teaching things that are, are getting us further and further from biblical truth and getting us to compromise in many different ways. So it really is a mess. And, you know, Uh, We believers, we need to stand for the truth. We need to stand up for what the Bible says and stop compromising on these issues. So anyway, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop ranting. Uh, Next week, we're going to pick up with part two. And so with that, I love you guys. And we'll see you next week. 